Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul is fully confident in the gospel because he says it is the power of God. And so what's going to happen here through the rest of Romans, really, but definitely for the next several chapters, like several meaning ten, is that he's going to give a very careful and thorough description and explanation of what he means when he says the gospel. What exactly is the good news that is not only good news, but is powerful? And one of the questions that's worth asking is, if he's so confident in the gospel because it is the power of God, the really good question is, why is power required? If it's just about forgiveness, if it's just about the fact that God's going to look at our sin and say, I'm not going to remember it anymore, why is power required? Why is such a great amount of power necessary? Why is God's very power essential for the gospel? And so tonight, in these first, the rest of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, he begins to explain that. He begins to explain what the problem is that requires God's power to overcome. So that's what we're going to be looking at this evening. And it's called no excuses. (laughs) He actually uses that phrase twice in this passage. We're going to look at for two different reasons. He says, there's no excuses. And we'll look at what he means by that. You'll see right off the bat why I mentioned that, you know, he starts with kind of the bad news. The first four sentences, I mean the first four sentences, first four words, the wrath of God. It's great. We're in for a a nice ride this evening. The wrath of God is being revealed, says Paul. It's being revealed. People can see it if they look. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It is really important as we read this, and it's important because it's clear as he goes forward what he's trying to say. It is important as we read this, we do not read this differently than it's actually written. What he says is that the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. He does not say here, the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godless and wicked people. Here's the reason this is important. Because you might be tempted as you read this, the Romans might be tempted as they read this, to point their fingers at the wicked and godless people and say, oh, this is not about me. But Paul is very careful here. He's talking about the wickedness and godlessness that exists in all people. It's clear that he's talking here in this chapter about humanity as a whole. Now, he does something interesting, and I don't know if it's a trick of Greek grammar versus English grammar, or if it's because he's trying to not be any more offensive than he he is necessarily going to be. But he starts referring to humanity as they. Now, he's clear that he is part of humanity, and he's clear that you are part of humanity, and he's clear the readers are part of humanity. But you're going to see through the rest of this, he keeps talking about they. But I don't want you to be fooled by that again to think that what we're reading is about people that are never you. I don't want you to think that he's saying there's people who are really wicked like Hitler. There's people who are really godless like your political opponents. There's people who are really terrible. And we're talking all about them. It's clear. You'll see. It's clear as we go through the context. He means to include everybody, all of humanity in what he's talking about. And so he starts by saying the wrath of God is being revealed. And that's the second question. How is it being revealed? He's writing this to the Romans. So he's saying it's a, it's a present tense thing for them. Turns out it's a present tense thing for us too. But, but why? How is it being revealed? 
from heaven. What is the revelation of it? It's not like we're in the end times and the judgment has come and, and all the goats and sheep have been separated. In what way is the wrath of God being revealed right now, says Paul, to us against the godlessness and the wickedness of people? And then he says one other thing that's going to be important as we keep going. He says that the wickedness of people suppresses the truth. You see that? It is the very wickedness that suppresses the truth. Paul's about to tell us something, and what he wants to say is, God, notice the, 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 the contrast. God is a God who wants to reveal. The wrath of God is being revealed. But in our wickedness, we have a tendency to want to suppress. And the reason this is going to be important is because God's going to talk about, I mean, Paul is going to talk about how God is constantly showing himself to us, and we are constantly not seeing it, and there are no excuses for the fact that we don't see it. That's what Paul wants to say. He wants to say that God is as clear as can be. It is our wickedness that suppresses the truth. And there's no excuses for it. Now, of course, and I, I will say this again, because I really don't want any of us to, to be, and, and we will come back to hope, I promise you. But I don't want any of us to be kind of stuck in any of the things I'm going to say today. I will remind you, that again, when he says they and he says us, he's speaking of humanity as a whole, which means this is relevant for all of us. But for those of us who have received the grace of God, who have received the gospel, there is power in it, which makes these things no longer true of us, even though they're relevant. So just hold that thought. We'll come back to that again. But it is really important if we want to understand the gospel and the incredible power. If we want to be in awe of what actually happens at the gospel, it is important we understand how bad the situation is. And Paul starts with this line. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. See this? God wants to reveal himself. God wants to show himself. But Paul says, God has made it plain to them, meaning us, meaning humanity. God has made it plain to them, but the wickedness suppresses the truth so we can't see the reality of what's there. Here's the picture I want you to see. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden with me. I think you're all familiar with this story. Probably most of you in Zoom land and Facebook as well. I want you to think about Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve, they are naked. They're unashamed. They're, everything is pure. Everything is good. They walk with garden, with garden. They walk with God in the garden. They, they like to walk with him. They feel no guilt. They feel no shame. This is impossible for us to imagine, really, isn't it? Because we always carry a bit of guilt, a bit of shame, at least, and some of us more than a bit. But they walk and they're free from any of that. There's no fear. There's no distance between them and God because there's no need for distance between them and God. They feel comfortable in the presence of the Almighty Creator. And they walk in this garden and God says, I just don't want you to worry about figuring out what's right and wrong. I just want you to trust me. So don't worry about that tree which will tell you right and wrong, except not very well. And so we know the story. They eat the fig. I think it's a fig. They eat the fig. And, they are, they, and then the first thing that happens is they hide. They hear God coming, and they hide from God. They don't want to see God. They don't want God to see them. So they do something they've never done in all of their existence to this point, and that's that they intentionally put up a veil between them and God. In this case, the veil's probably a bush. Maybe this is an apple tree. Who knows? But they're hiding from God. And it says they're hiding because they're naked. And God says naked was not a problem 20 minutes ago. Now it's a problem. I think it's true that literally they're hiding because they're naked and they look at their nakedness and they feel something they've never felt before and that's shame. The problem is, as proof that we aren't good at knowing good from evil, is that their shame shouldn't have had anything to do with their being naked. Their shame should have had everything to do with the fact that they disobeyed God. But the nakedness becomes a convenient distraction and metaphor. Now, keep your clothes on. I still think it's a good idea to wear clothes today. 
but they feel shame. And because they feel shame, they suppress the truth of God. They back away from God. This is what Paul is saying to us. When we feel like God just isn't clear, he doesn't reveal himself. I've talked to unbelievers who say, I just, why doesn't God just make himself clear? Paul would say he does, and he is. He's revealing himself all the time, but it is your wickedness that is suppressing that. And what does Paul mean? He means it's, it's your shame. It's your, it, to face God, to see the face of God, is to also come face to face with your own flaws your own imperfections, your own shame, your own degradation, your own vast fall from where God is. And because we don't want to face that, it is easier to hide the truth of God from ourselves. And that's why he says, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them but in their wickedness, they suppress the truth. He says, he goes on, he says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, he acknowledges God's qualities, the essence of who God is are invisible. But he says he's still plain and he's made himself plain for this reason. God's invisible qualities, his power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse, no excuses. Here's, here's a way to think of it. Talent. The existence of talent in a human being can't actually be seen. It's not like your nose, your face, or the color of your hair. The talent I have, you cannot see by looking at me. It's an invisible quality. But if I were to turn around and I had an easel and I were to paint upon it a picture, then by looking at that picture, by what I had created, you would all know clearly that I have no talent. <laughs> but our worship team has talent. And when they come up here, you can't see their talent. But when they start producing something, when they start creating something, you can see their talent. And it becomes evident. It becomes plain. So it is with God. His invisible qualities are invisible, but the mere existence of creation, says Paul. The existence of this incredible universe which the more we study it, it only gets bigger and bigger, more amazing, more incredible. The existence of the creation shows us his eternal power and his divine nature. So the first thing Paul says is even though we're afraid to face our own shame and therefore we're afraid to face God so we suppress the truth of God, he says there's really no excuses because God does reveal himself. Now, I want to share a little something with you that I call original logic, okay? It's about origins, logic about origins. Here's the reason I want to share this. For a while, for a long time in the history of the world, you know who believed in God? Kind of everybody. <laughs> you know why? Because they existed. Because the world existed. You look at so-called primitive cultures, they tend to all believe in God. And why? Because they look around and they say, there's a waterfall there. Where did it come from? There's a, there's a moon in the sky. Where did it come from? There's sort of a natural, instinctive, intuitive sense that as we see things, we believe they came from somewhere because that's our experience, isn't it? Our experience in the world tells us that the existence of something leads to an origin of that thing. If you're walking down the street and you see a baby lying in the middle of the street, you know for certain that baby came from a mother. You just do. You never stop and say that baby came from nothing. If you see a rock, you know that rock came from somewhere, from something. Maybe you say it came from a lava flow or it came from great heat in another way or it came from great pressure, but it came from something. There's an origin to everything we see and we know that, we believe that. So that's our experience and so for a long time that's what people have assumed. For, for, for us, for the world, over the last hundred or so years, 
There's been a movement to explain the origin of things without the need of God. And so today we stand at a place when if you say, I believe God exists because the world exists, people look at you with pity and say, that's very quaint. Because they say science and intellect tell us that there doesn't have to be a God for the, for the creation to exist. Science and logic, they say, tell us that you're naive to rely on a God. That's what we did when we were all stupider people. But now we've become smarter people. And now we know that that was just a crutch. I, I want to challenge that for a second. I want to give you a little bit of what I call original logic. And I want to start with science. And I just want to say this. You can look into everything that I say here, of course. Science in broad terms tells us three things. When science tries to discover the origins of things, we run into an issue right away. And that's because science is about evidence and replication. And the truth is, we've never seen anything come from nothing. Science has no evidence that such a thing can happen. Everything comes from something. So one of the things that science tells us is that nothing comes from nothing. That's what science says, that nothing comes from nothing. Science also suggests, interestingly enough, that neither matter nor energy are ever actually destroyed or created, that our experience with the world is that neither energy nor matter are ever created or destroyed. They are simply converted. Matter can become energy. Energy can become other energy. Perhaps energy can become matter. But never are they actually created or destroyed. They're simply converted. In fact, what this means is the idea of something existing forever is not an idea that is contrary to science. It's an idea that we struggle with because things change. But it's not an idea that science suggests is impossible. In fact, science suggests that energy or matter has existed or could have existed forever. And when you add to that the fact that science says nothing comes from nothing, it leads you further to see that science suggests that there's never been a period in which there was nothing. Nonetheless, despite these two things that science tells us, science also suggests one other thing. And that's that there was a beginning to the universe. Despite everything we said, that nothing comes from nothing, and that matter and energy are neither created nor destroyed, science suggests that if we go back far enough, we can find the beginning of matter and the beginning of the universe. And in fact, the prevailing scientific theories are that there was a moment when there was nothing, and then there was a moment when there was something. Hold those for a moment. Let's look at logic for a second. Logic is different than science. Logic doesn't depend upon the evidence of the empirical things in front of us in the way that science does. It takes a little bit different tack, but it takes certain principles and, and, and structures that show us that the way we think can sort of be capitalized on to produce truths, to find the true results from true premises. And logic tells us two things. When you think about the origin of the universe, and this will make sense to you when I say it, Logic tells us there's only two options. If you accept the existence of anything, which that's a whole other argument, but for now let's just accept the existence of anything. If you accept the existence of anything, if you're looking at something and it's there, logic tells us there's only two things that are possible about that thing. Either it didn't exist before and it came from nothing. Either something came from nothing. If we push back to find where the, you know, where did this rock came from? Well, it came from the volcano. Where did the volcano come from? Well, it came from the, the mountain and the lava. Well, where did that come from? And you push back and you push back and you push back. You end up at a point where only one of two things is possible. There's only two options. Either something came from nothing or something has existed forever from which everything came. Those are the only options. I mean, if you think about it, you'll discover. Those are the only options. There's nowhere else to go. Something came from nothing, or something has always existed from which everything else came. 
if you put those together, if you put science and logic together, you discover that it is not at all contrary to logic and science to come to the conclusion that some kind of energy, some kind of something existed forever from which everything else came. That is, in fact, scientifically compatible and logically compatible. And in fact, it's a lot more compatible than almost any other answer. Now, you can call this energy lots of things, but to call it God and ascribe to that God intelligence is not at all incompatible with anything we've just said. So there is nothing in science or logic which says that when we look at the universe to believe that it came from a God who created it, there's nothing about that which is either illogical or unscientific. So when Paul says, when we look at the universe, when we look at the world, when we look at creation, it is evident to us that we can see God's qualities of creation, I don't think he's wrong. So why do we push aside that idea? Why do we claim that our evidence or our intellect gets in the way? Not because our evidence or our intellect get in the way. Both of those strongly support the idea of a God. Why do we push it away? Because our wickedness suppresses the truth. Because to face the reality of a God who created everything is to face the reality of a God who created me and then to face my own failure to be that which God created me to be. My own shame pushes away the idea of God. The greatest evidence we have for a world that exists without a creator is simply our own shame. Or we take it to be that. Think about Socrates. We talked about Socrates two, uh, a couple of weeks ago. We talked about how Paul showed up in Athens and there was this statue to an unknown God, remember? And that unknown God was there because Socrates had used logic and philosophy. Socrates, the founder, if you will, there were philosophers before him, but honestly, he is probably the most pivotal person in Greek philosophy, certainly among the big three of Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. And he came first, so we'll give him that credit. Socrates argued based upon logic alone that there had to be a God and he had to be bigger than these glorified humans called Zeus and Apollo, that he had to be infinite and eternal, that he had to be, have the qualities that we value of justice and virtue and beauty and honesty and friendship and love and integrity. In other words, that he had to be a good God because otherwise we wouldn't value those things. And then concluded that he had to be a God who would want to reveal himself. In other words, Socrates, with no help from Paul, with no help from the Jews, looked at the evidence of the world around him and came to the conclusions that Paul said you would come to if you just looked at the world. <laughs> it's pretty interesting, pretty fascinating. So it's not evidence or intellect which leads us to deny God, but our shame, it's our nakedness. To see God is to see our own frailty at best and our own wickedness at worst. There's really no excuses. The world tells us God's here. God reveals himself in his creation. Paul goes on. He says, for although they knew God, again, Paul comes from the standpoint that God revealed himself. Humanity knew God. He was there. He was evident. He was clear. He was plain. But Paul says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Why? Why would you know God but refuse to acknowledge God? Why would you know God exists but refuse to give thanks to him? Because of your shame. Because to give gratitude to God, to give glory to God, is to say that God is God and I am not, and to face again your shame. The wickedness, our desire to be self-sufficient, to be in control of the universe, to be ourselves without failure and flaw, represses and suppresses the truth of God. So although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And as a result of that, he says, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Why did their thinking become futile? Because what we're told, what logic tells us is that if you have accurate, valid, true premises, you can argue validly from those and produce true conclusions. But if you have false promises, premises rather, you can argue a valid argument come up with a valid conclusion, which is completely false, which is incorrect. When you remove the premise of the existence of God, it changes the entire argument. It changes all the logic that flows from it. Every conclusion you come to from then is tainted by the fact that your first premise was false. Aristotle calls God the prime mover, 
the first premise, if you will, from which everything else flows. You remove that and everything else is futile. You spin yourself in circles and you'll never find the reality because you've ignored the very most important basic reality of all in God. And not only, says Paul, does our thinking become futile, but our hearts became dark. Hearts is used in scripture a couple of different ways. One way hearts is used is to describe the essence of who we are. It's the core of our being. He's saying here that we're holistic people. And when our thinking became dark, so did we. The core of who we were became dark and unable to see the light. Heart is also used another way, which is actually very closely connected. I think it's almost like just a met- one is a metaphor for the other. Heart is also used to describe our deepest motivations. The thing that drives us forward, the values that are, that are most core to who we are. Well, he says these became dark. <laughs> the things that motivate us, the things that move us forward, the agendas we have didn't become enlightened. They became dark. When we remove the premise of God, then all our thinking becomes futile and all our motivations and therefore all our behaviors and actions became futile and foolish and dark. When you deny the truth of God, it leads you necessarily to deny the truth about the world and truth about yourself, truth about other people. You have to, it's like a cascade of dominoes. Once you remove God, there are so many other truths that just cannot be true anymore. He says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. <laughs> the problem with being deluded, the problem with, with your premises being flawed is you can still come to really brilliant, valid, well-worked-out arguments and think that you're really wise and think you're really on track when, in fact, you're just way off. So the world thinks it's becoming more and more enlightened and smarter and smarter and wiser and wiser. But what's actually happening is we're exchanging this incredible glory of the immortal God. And not just in God himself, but in us. Think about this for a moment. If you remove God as our creator, you remove the idea of us being made in the image of God. We ourselves become so much less than God said we were. We think we remove God. We push him aside because we're afraid of our shame and our frailty. But by pushing him aside, we push aside the one thing that made us sacred to begin with. We push aside the one thing that runs counter to our frailty and our corruptibility and our flaws. We push aside the only hope we have for glory. And we exchange that immortal glory, it says, and Paul speaks very literally here. Think about the idols that people would make in Paul's time. You may remember in one of the stories in Paul's missionary journeys, in case you're wondering if idols still existed, you remember, remember at one point that the silversmiths ran Paul out of town because he was ruining their business because no one wanted idols anymore. <laughs> because they made images to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. When we take away the glory of an immortal, awesome God, all we're left with, the only thing we can do is to elevate things that are base. Things from which we've even removed the little sacredness we had by removing God. We now elevate those to a place of sacredness they no longer deserve or never deserved. And we find ourselves not even worshiping an animal or a human, but a created wooden replication, representation of that animal or that human. And when you create something that you then worship, what does that say about you? I mean, if you worship something created, how much greater is the creator of that thing you worship? This is a subtle end run around giving us permission to worship ourselves. (laughs) And Paul wants to stress here what a tragedy this is. But in our wisdom, our wisdom, we replaced this incredible immortal glory with birds and statues and humans. It's as if 
we are in the process because as our hearts become darkened and our minds become futile, we enter this process where all the sanctity we once had is leeching out of us. We become more and more degraded. We become more and more animalistic. Nothing becomes more sacred to us than simply our base desires. Because that is everything. Because that is our motivations. Because that's all that's left to drive us. He says this, Therefore, God gave them over. I want to stress that I think what's happening here is Paul is connecting the beginning sentence with God gave them over. In other words, the question was, how is God revealing his wrath? He's revealing his wrath by letting people have what they insist they want when they've turned aside God. Because that will only further degrade us. That will only further shame us. It is the wrath of God and the judgment upon man that we receive the shame we're due when we insist on the shame we're due. <laughs> it becomes the penalty. God, in his wrath, allows that. In his judgment, allows that. We'll also see that it's also his kindness. But for now, to recognize this is the judgment is to give you, to give us, to give them, to give humanity what humanity insists is its God. Because to do so only further degrades us. He says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, those motivations of those darkened hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Let's think about the Greeks for a moment. Let's really understand what's happening here. What's happening here is when we remove the sacredness of God, then we lose the sacredness of our bodies, which were created to serve God, and we lose the sacredness of even things like sex. Sex is a sacred thing. It's designed for a specific context of intimacy. It's designed for a context of intimacy to rep reflect and represent and teach us new things about selflessness, about love about oneness, about unity, about pleasure, about God. But what happens is when we are driven by the animalistic base desires, sex no longer becomes sacred. It becomes base. And as it becomes base and casual, it becomes anything, anytime, anywhere is fine. You know, the Greek world, it is true. It is a culture. As Paul writes this, he's writing to people who live in a culture where sex is without boundaries. It is pretty much okay anywhere, anytime. And it leads to the degrading of people. We're not going to dwell on this, but I'll just give you two examples because they're examples that from our vantage point, we can still see how degrading they are. One is that it was normal. It was normalized. It was, it, was, it was without offense to most people for men to take young boys for sexual purposes. You look at that and say, that's hideous. It is. It's degrading to the young boy. It's degrading to the man. It's degrading. But it had become normalized in that culture because of the foolishness of thinking and the darkening of hearts. How about this? How about the fact that women were property and they were objects? And many people combined an idea of prostitution with religion. And not all prostitution was voluntary. It's degrading to women. And it's degrading to the men who went there. Because they become animalistic, driven only by desires and urges. And so as Paul writes us, he's explaining, look at the culture we live in, and you can see that God's wrath is being revealed upon us. Because instead of being people whose image is in the immortal glory of the immortal God, whose bodies are sacred, able to do sacred work for a sacred God. We've become base, animalistic, urge and desire-driven people. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this either, but let's be honest and acknowledge that we also live today in a culture where sex has very few boundaries. And we have normalized all sorts of things that 50, 100, 150 years ago would have been seen as depraved. And in fact, it's interesting that the two things I mentioned to you in Greece, we still are not where Greece is because we're able to see how bad they are 
but the prevalence of them should concern us. Think about the Me Too movement. What is that if not objectifying women as property for the sexual pleasure of men? And it was normalized in parts of our country. How about this? America is right now the number one purchaser of children for sex. That's awful. That's horrific. We know it's horrific. But do you understand this is just the tip of the iceberg that comes from a culture which has normalized sexual depravity. And there's so many other examples of it. It's very easy. It's so simple now in pop culture. It's, it's in, in a sitcom, in a family sitcom. It's expected that everybody in that over a certain age is having sex with multiple people because that's what we're told is normal. The idea of reserving yourself for marriage is quaint, archaic, and maybe even repressive, according to the world we live in right now. So some of the things Paul says here relate to us as well. That our culture is experiencing some of that judgment. That he has allowed us to slide into this place where things that were once sacred are no longer sacred, but it's not limited to sex. This is true of so many things. This is true of all things that come out of bounds. If you worship your friendship, if you try to make it sacred, it loses the sacredness it has. If you look to food, which God provided for our pleasure and enjoyment, but it becomes your object of worship, if you're driven by your desire for that, it degrades your body. Physical beauty, taking risks, even love. These things can become base when removed from the existence of God. And when they become base, it's easy for us to not even notice it, to think we've become wise and more enlightened. People say, why do you need to get married? We know better than that now. That was unimportant. We think we become wise. We think we become enlightened. We think we're smarter. But it's a futile thinking and darkened heart when we are driven only by our instincts and our urges. He says, and this is really just a summary of everything he said this far. He says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. He says, what it really comes down to is this. They exchanged the truth, not truth not just lots of truths that God says, but the truth about God, the truth of God, the truth of who God is, the truth that God is. <laughs> they exchanged the truth of the immortal God, this incredible, awesome, glorious, beautiful truth. He says they exchanged that for base animal worship, to worship created things rather than the one who actually made it. Again, to Paul, this is a tragedy. This is a tragic, de demeaning movement as we degrade ourselves, not just our bodies, but our minds and our hearts and our souls and our spirits and any part of us you can think of because we're willing to trade this incredible, awesome truth of an immortal, beautiful, transcending God for things we ourselves can create. Our problem is, is one of self-defeat, deceit rather, self-deceit and confusion. God is the truth. God is all those things we desire. He is justice and beauty and love and pleasure and enjoyment and intimacy and friendship and, and, and justice and every virtue that we seek for elsewhere. He's all those things. And when we deny this, we are immediately deceived into looking for them elsewhere. I think it's really important for us to understand that in Scripture, deception feels and looks just like enlightenment. Let me say that again. Deception feels and looks just like enlightenment when you feel it. The only difference between faith and deception is not what it feels like, but whether what you believe is true or not. The strength of your conviction doesn't make something true. You can be convinced of something true and you can be convinced of something false and that conviction feels the same. The truth is what you believe is, is nothing. 
How you believe is nothing. What you believe in is everything. Faith and deception feel the same and look the same and they drive our behaviors the same and they become our worldview through which we see everything the same. When we swallow the big lie that there is no God, then we swallow with it a whole host of lies about who we are and what we are. And we lose our sacredness while believing ourselves to be little gods. God doesn't force upon us the truth. Now, he always makes it plain, says Paul. He always presents it, says Paul. He even woos us to it. He continues to reach out to us with it. He places it in front of us at every opportunity. But when we won't look because we can't accept our shame, then he only has one option left. And it's to let our deception run its course. With hope, I believe, that Paul says here in just a few verses, with hope that we will be forced to come face to face with our shame. And when we do, that will be the last barrier between coming face to face with God. Because when we are ready to accept our shame, then maybe we'll be ready to accept our God. See what I mean? This is the most cheerful message you have ever heard. Hang in there with me. It's about to get worse and then better. He says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. You don't have to raise your hand. I just want you to think of this in your head. How many of you just wish this verse weren't in the scriptures? How many of you feel tension as I read this verse because you're afraid what I might or might not say? And you might or might not disagree with me, and that makes you uncomfortable. That's okay. Because here's what I want to say. First of all, I'm not going to tell you all the conclusions you have to draw from this. I'm going to let you wrestle with it. But I do want to say this. The one thing I really plead with you not to do is just ignore it. See, if we're going to be people, and I really think we need to be people who trust in the authority of Scripture, at least on some level. If we're going to be people who trust in the authority of Scripture, and if you have received salvation, you are counting on the authority of that Scripture to speak to your salvation. If we're going to be people who trust on the authority of Scripture at all, we cannot simply trust in the authority of the Scripture that already agrees with the things we already think. Because that's not trusting in the authority of Scripture. That's trusting in the authority of things you already think. We cannot simply trust in the authority of Scripture when it agrees with what the culture around us tells us. Because that's not counting on the authority of Scripture. That's counting on the authority of the culture around us. We cannot be people who simply trust in the authority of Scripture when it agrees with the science that's laid before us. Because that's not trusting in the authority of Scripture. It's trusting in the authority of the science that's laid before us. If the authority of Scripture never challenges your view, you have either a perfect understanding of everything or you have a low trust in the authority of Scripture. And I'd ask you realistically, which one do you think is more likely? <laughs> All right, having said that, don't ignore verses like this. Clearly, our culture and even many in the church argue that homosexuality is not a sin. There are some who argue that this verse does not say homosexuality is a sin. They argue that this verse says there's a certain depraved kind of homosexuality which is a sin. And you know what? I will let you argue that. Because at least you're looking to the authority of Scripture. I might discuss with you whether I think that's what it actually says, but I think it's reasonable and I'm willing, I feel better for you to argue that than to simply say to me, well, I just don't like those scriptures, so I'm going to ignore those. I'm not going to dwell on this because I don't think this is the main point. This passage, we, we miss everything else. What I want to say to you is whatever you think about this and homosexuality, and I don't want to hide anything, so I'll tell you where I come from, but I, I want to say this to you first. 
whatever you think this verse says, please do not let this verse overshadow the rest of what we've been talking about. The reality of degradation, the reality of pushing God aside and it leading us to futile thinking is still true. And if you want to argue that part of the reflection of that is that we have embraced homosexuality when we shouldn't, you can do that. If you want to argue also that that doesn't include homosexuality, it just includes a certain depraved kind of homosexuality, you can argue that. Don't miss the point. Are you with me so far? Now, just because I'm not, I'm not embarrassed of my views and I'm not trying to hide anything, and I don't, I'm, but I also don't want anyone to get stuck on this. I want to say two things. One is, I personally have a very difficult time reconciling this verse and a few others. And yes, there are only a few. But I do have a difficult time reconciling this verse and a few others with the idea that homosexuality is God's design for sex. But I don't know what that means about how we as a church should respond to it. This is one of my moments of, I don't know. And here's why I say that. I think in the time that David lived, polygamy was also a a sexually depraved idea. I think it was an idea that God did not intend. It was not God's view of sex. It was also bad. Concubines were women as property. It is hard not to also put this in this category of being futile thinking, and yet God did not make a thing of it with David and Saul at the time. Is it possible we live at a time in our culture where God doesn't want us to make a thing of homosexuality even though it might still be a sin? Uh, Maybe. But as I said before, I don't know. (laughs) When God gives me clarity, I'll let you know. But what it does mean is that in our church, as with a lot of things in our church, we absolutely do not treat people who disagree with me as second-class citizens. To the extent, this is going to get me in trouble with somebody, but hopefully not too much, that absolutely a, a loving homosexual couple is welcome in our groups. We will embrace them. We will love them. We will challenge them to follow Jesus. We will not assume, because they disagree with, this, with me on this, that they are not believers in the same way that I don't assume because some of you slander and gossip and lie that you're not believers. (laughs) In the same way that I don't assume because some of you have been trapped into some of the most depraved pornography viewing sessions that you're not a believer. We wrestle with what we wrestle with. That's all I want to say about that tonight. But I do want to say the concept, the idea, the thing that Paul is making clear here, even at this point, is that as we become depraved, it not only affects our mind and our heart, but it does affect our behaviors. And I do think that those who argue that this verse teaches that homosexuality is the peak of degradation, I will say that's not true because it's very clear that the very next verse is the peak of degradation. Because Paul says, furthermore, and then goes further, and it might surprise you what Paul seems to think is worse than this sexual depravity, whatever it is. He says this, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, coming back to the main point, why do we not see God? Because God isn't clear? No, because we didn't think it was worth it. Because we push them aside. It's not worth it to us to see our shame if that's what we have to do to see God. So furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. So our minds are going there, but look where that leads us. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they know, he says, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. If you read this list and somehow come away with the idea that homosexuality is the only depravity of humanity that we should deal with, you are clearly reading with an agenda. In fact, if someone is railing against sexual perversity of any kind, but they're doing so in a way which reflects their own slander, gossipy nature, their own arrogance, their own boasting, their own lack of understanding, their own lack of love or mercy, 
then that means they're arguing from their own depravity. And we can question whether they've missed the point. Because the point is clear. It's this. God makes himself known pretty clearly by his existence and I think also by our consciences. Because we know that such things deserve death. We don't see it because we're hiding from God. Because we're hiding from God because to face him is to face our shame. It's to face the way we've degraded ourselves. And the longer we hide, the worse it gets. We become more and more animalistic beasts, worshiping less and less worthy things to feed only our own lusts of all sorts until eventually our spiritual ears and eyes no longer work at all and our hearts have turned to stone. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Paul, can we turn a corner? Yes. Yes, we can. Because even though Paul's not done, he, like me, is beginning to feel a little heavy. And he wants to give us a little hope before he jumps back in. So we do have to do some of this again next week. But not all of this. But first, I want to point out another reason there's no excuses you can't say God doesn't reveal himself. He does. You can't say, well, I'm just where the rest of my culture is. It's our cultural blinders and our cultural bias. You know what? That's true. Every culture has their blinder and bias. But Paul says, that ain't no excuse. You can't simply look around and say, my culture says this is okay, so it's okay. Because I think even though there are some in the church who will pick on sexual depravity, and they, I think they can, that's fine. That is a problem in our culture. I 100% believe that. By the way, if you want to, Google a book. It's called um, The Failure of the Sexual Revolution. It's by Louise Perry. She's a, a uh, uh, on the political side of things, she's liberal, she's progressive, but she spent so much of her life in crisis care units for women who had been raped, and she came to the conclusion that the sexual revolution, that sex without boundaries, has been the worst thing for women that's ever happened in the last hundred years. Check it out. It's fascinating. But, but it's not just that. It's not just sexual depravity. I think there's other issues in our culture that have become normalized. I think envy has become incredibly normalized. Incredibly normalized. It's normalized by all the game shows and all the lotteries, right? It's normalized by social media, where we're taught to want to be that person and that influencer. It's normalized by the way we present things because we want people to envy us. It's normalized by the way in politics we pit each other against each other in envy. Envy has become normalized to the point where we don't even see how depraved it is. Greed has become normalized in our country. I am a capitalist. But not because I think greed is good. With no apologies to whoever it was that said that. I've forgotten his name. Greed is not good. But greed's become normalized. We want more and more and more. I fear that hate is becoming normalized. Just because the culture says it, our culture might be wrong, and often is. So that is not an excuse. And then Paul recognizes our own arrogance. He recognizes the fact that we find it so much easier to see degradation in others rather than in ourselves. He says, you therefore have no excuse, no excuses. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things and you think, no, that's not true. I judge people for things I don't do. That might be true. Although think about relationships you've had and if you're honest, you'll see that often you do judge people for the very thing you're guilty of and if you don't believe it, you'll see, I bet you've seen other people do it to you. You know that moment when they judge you for something and all you can think is, wait a minute, me? What about you? That's a terrible way, by the way, to respond when somebody has something to say. <laughs> but you might be right. They may be judging you something that they themselves struggle with. But even when they're not, that's not really what Paul's saying. He's not saying you can judge people as long as you don't have the exact same sin they do. That's not his point. His point is that all this degradation, all this sin, all this corruption is all the same thing. What is it? It's we've pushed aside God. And he says, what he's saying is this. When you point your finger at someone else, what you're doing is you are acknowledging that there's good and there's bad. 
and you're acknowledging that, that there's judgment that should be given. And once you open the door to say people can be judged, then Paul says, but you also have pushed God aside. You also have, have in your wickedness turned away from what he's telling you. You have suppressed the truth of God. That's the thing we're all judging each other for. And he says, when you judge someone else for suppressing the truth, you have got to be aware that you are simply affirming that God's judgments are right. And that means you, my friend, are equally in trouble. So there's no excuses. God does reveal himself. And the culture can just be wrong. And judging someone else only indicts ourselves. Or us. I asked Lorraine which one and I didn't look for the answer. Oh, I missed it. I missed that text. What was it? What's the better line? Oh, it doesn't matter. Judging other people only, only condemns us. That's probably a better line. <laughs> because we ourselves do the same thing. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? It's just that point. When you judge someone, you're affirming God's judgments are true. Once you do that, you're in trouble. Because God also judges that you also have repressed the truth by your wickedness and godlessness. Humanity. Every member. Every person. Your very act of making judgments confirms and approves of God's own judgments. And by the way, everybody makes judgments. I, I, I love talking to people who are like, I don't think anyone should judge anyone. We should all be non-judgmental. And then I say, how do you feel about people that are judgmental? And they say, I hate them. I say, right. That's correct. You have judged them less. Tolerance is the same way. We should all be tolerant of everybody. How tolerant are you of people who are not tolerant? Well, I'm not. Right. Correct. And the mere fact that you open that door says, yeah, there are true judgments. And God is the one who makes them. Of course, this means, among other things, that we need to be gracious to each other. No relationship will exist or work or function without grace. I've become convinced of that more and more and more and more. Every relationship between humans requires grace. No excuses. But we're not going to leave you here. And Paul isn't going to leave you here. After all, the gospel is good news and not bad. <laughs> when people deny their own depravity, they deny God. And when they deny God, they deny the gospel. There's no excuse because God reveals himself in creation and in our own conscience. And our judgments of others reminds us of our own flawed nature. So if we're without excuse, what now? Well, Paul says this. He says, you're judging people, and when you do so, he says, do you show contempt for the riches of the kindness, forbearance, and patience of God? Do you show contempt for the riches, kindness, forbearance, and patience of God? You know what contempt is? It's judgment, isn't it? It's judging somebody and judging them contemptible. And he's saying, when you judge other people, what you're doing is you're approving of the judgment of God, but you're judging the kindness of God because he has not yet judged them. Because the wrath of God is being revealed, but he has not yet lowered the boom. He has not yet cut them off. He has allowed the judgment to come to them so that they will turn to him, so that they will return, so that they will face their shame and then be willing to face the God who can cleanse them of that shame. But when you judge people and say God should judge them, you are not only judging God, you are showing contempt for his choices of kindness and forbearance and patience. You're saying that God is wrong to do so. Jonah ran from God because he did not want to preach of judgment to the Ninevites because he knew that if he did, they might repent. And he knew if they repented that God would be kind. And Jonah was, in con was contemptuous of God's kindness unless it applied to him. <laughs> then he kind of liked it. 
This is a glimpse. This is the hint of the good news to come because the question becomes, why is God being patient? Why is he being kind? Because there's hope. What hope is there when we've become so depraved and animalistic that our only possibility is to see our own shame? What hope is there? Because God's great power in the gospel doesn't just forgive, it changes, it redeems. It doesn't matter how sexually impure you may or may not have been in your past. It makes you pure. When we preach on sexual immorality and purity, we have to rush in to tell people who have had sexually impure lives that God redeems that totally. Your body does not remain degraded in, in, in the way that God sees you. And in other ways, it doesn't matter if anger has become your defining trait or envy has become the core of your life or hatred has captured you. God's great power at the gospel can redeem all of it. He can take it all. It doesn't matter if your heart is darker than the darkest night. The God of light redeems it all. He can change you. He can make you holy. He can truly and well heal you. Paul is going to give details on this to come, but I had to give you a little of it now. So what do you do, though, if a message like this leaves you feeling shame? What do you do? Well, Paul says this. Do you not realize that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Repentance does not mean you figure out how to fix yourself. Repentance does not mean that you suddenly do all the right things. Repentance does not mean that on a dime you suddenly know how to stop degrading your body and live the sacred holy life you were called to. Repentance means something much simpler than any of that. It means you change your mind. It means you change your mind about God. You've been suppressing the truth and now you say, oh, gosh, I do need him. It means you change your mind about yourself. You say, I thought I was perfect and oh, gosh, there's a lot of shame here means you change your mind. Christians, shame has no place in your life at all today. Shame has no place in your life. You know why? You may still do bad things. You may still do wrong things. You will still think wrong thoughts. But that core of who you are, that degradation of yourself that came to you, God cleansed you of that shame. The power of the gospel is real and you are not worthy of shame. Shame isn't simply saying I don't like what I did. Shame is saying I don't like who I am. Shame is saying I am not worthy of God's love. Shame is saying I'm not worthy of love. Shame is saying I am just depraved. But the gospel says he has cleansed you of that shame. He has made you worthy. He has made you loved. He has made you acceptable. He has made you righteous and holy. Shame has no place in your life as a Christian. The devil would love to increase your shame. Why? Because it causes you to hide from God. But as a Christian, the answer, your repentance involves not becoming a better person, but involves simply turning back to the God who has cleansed you of shame. Know that no matter how many steps you take away from God, when you turn back in his direction, he is right there with his arms open wide. Because the second you turn, he runs 50 steps to catch up to you. I love the picture of the prodigal son where it says the father ran to meet his son when he saw him from a distance. That's God. I had a friend who used to say the one thing about turning back to God is when we turn back to him, we never see him with a frown. Because the mere act of turning back to him makes him smile. There's no place for shame in your life. Guilt. Guilt has a little place, a small place. It has a place to say to you, what you did did not reflect the holy person that you are. What you did did not glorify God above. What you did may have hurt someone else. It's good to know that, but the only place for guilt is to lead you to repentance. <laughs> to do what? To push you back to God. When you feel shame and guilt as a believer, what is your best response? Run to God, not from him. Because running from him is what brings those things in the first place. Unbeliever? Shame is real. <laughs> shame is not intended, though, to keep you from hiding from God or to keep you hiding your eyes. It's to bring you to the reality that you need the great power of God to cleanse you. 
No believer has been cleansed because they were smarter or better or more determined or more adorable or more righteous or better at religious stuff than you. Every unbeliever becomes a believer by the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.